Hey, Bankless Nation. Welcome to another episode of State of the Nation. We have Arbitrum back on. Why do we have Arbitrum on? Well, it's because they shipped. They shipped a layer two. It is here. It is available. Bunch of new exchanges on it. Uniswap, SushiSwap, Balancer. I was told layer two is never going to ship. Hey, it's shipped, David. It's here. <laughs> we just talked to them. So we've pre-recorded this episode, uh, given holidays and given schedules in advance, and we are releasing it to you on YouTube now, also on the podcast. But David, why don't we talk about what we talked about? First of all, who do we have on? We had uh, Stephen Goldfeder and Harry Kaladner, the CEO and CTO of Arbitrum, the guys leading the Arbitrum team into actual mainnet, along with a whole host of brains behind them as well. And, and these guys really understand the deep core principles of roll-ups and layer twos. And that's why everyone gets really excited about Arbitrum and why we were super excited to get them on, back on the show to update us with Arbitrum now, now that they are live, now that they are actually live. So we asked a number of different questions, uh, focused a lot on scalability and like the gas markets and how they are the same or different than Ethereum yeah, and how cool. they also adapt and evolve over time. That, those were some of the, the biggest lessons I've, I've had about learning about like L2 gas markets and how it's going to look like in the future, as well, yeah. as, well as a number of other questions as well. I think the, the reason this is also a really important question is because, um, you know, right now there's this, this question in the market, at least, whether uh, another layer one is going to supersede Ethereum or whether a layer ones are just competitive with layer twos, right? There's kind of this, uh, this question. And uh, we asked these questions of Arbitrum, hey, like, how are you going to attract liquidity? Into, how are you going to solve uh, composability problems? How are you competing with other layer ones that are competing maybe against the Ethereum ecosystem? They had some great answers. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that was cool, uh, and we'll have to do sometime, David, is like they have Reddit on board, dude. Mm -hmm. I, f I still feel like this is such an underreported story. Right. Like Reddit, 450 million users, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are the largest social media sites in the world? I'm a daily user of Reddit. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone should report on this. Someone like, should report on this. Well, Who Reddit should, do should that? come on, is what should happen. <laughs> uh, but apart from that, I mean, they picked Arbitrum, is, mm -hmm. is the bottom line. And right. the reason they picked it, we, we kind of got into it. Anyway, we talked about that. I think the bottom line here is they've cut the tape. You can, you can go through, you can uh, access the theme park. You have many of the DeFi apps you know and love. Others are coming soon. So like Aave, Compound, these are coming in the future. You said DeFi in days. Another cool takeaway for me, David, is um, post-merge, right? There's still more exciting things to look forward to on Ethereum. The next big milestone will be data sharding. Guess what data sharding does? Mm -hmm. Massively decreases the cost of all rollups, right? That's something we got into too. So some neat discoveries in this conversation. I think you as the listener um, through watching this and through listening to this will be better positioned to make a decision on which of these solutions are going to win into the future. Um, so we are going to get right to that conversation. But before we do, I got to ask the question I ask every single state of the nation, David, and that's what is the state of the nation today, sir? Ryan, we are migrating. We are migrating on our way to the Arbitrum layer two. Uh, there is liquidity getting onboarded. And then our, as soon as other applications that I'm a frequent user of like Compound and Aave come online to Arbitrum, I'm going over there, man. Like that's, yeah, I'm, that's where you're gonna live now? I'm, I'm moving. Now? I'm moving. Like, you're I'm moving, moving from, from Seattle, city to the Seattle, San Diego, and I'm moving from Ethereum to Arbitrum. So we, <laughs> we are migrating. Yeah, absolutely. We are. Uh, guys also wanted to do a shout out to So Rare. So Rare is a fantastic fantasy sports NFT game. 
that you can play. You can trade, you can collect, you can play fantasy sports with your friends. These guys are building on a roll-up too, on top of Ethereum. This is the largest NFT Ethereum sports game that exists. Absolutely massive uh, in Europe as well. So in the US, we call it soccer, but of course our European listeners will be calling it football. Uh, and um, go check them out. Go get involved in what they're doing. Go collect, go trade. We'll include a link in the show notes. You can also go to SoRare.com. That's S-O-R-A-R-E.com. We all know exactly how just absolutely fanatic uh, fantasy players are about their sports teams. And we also know that Ethereum is the new epicenter of culture. And now Ethereum is eating up all of the fantasy culture by making them tradable, fun NFT games on, on Ethereum. So that just makes Scream's product market fit to me. Yep, absolutely, guys. A few other things going on in the Bankless uh, community. So one is we just released our conversation with a, C a former CFTC commissioner. So if you haven't caught that, he, this is Brian Quintez. He just resigned from his position as commissioner at the CFTC. So he gives us some candid thoughts, some of his personal thoughts. We just dropped that podcast uh, yesterday, so on Monday. So go check that out. And in the future, David, we've got a big podcast coming out with mm -hmm. Kathy Wood from ARC Investments. We're recording that this Friday. You'll get to hear it next Monday. I am super stoked about that conversation. Chris Berninski is going to be there too. I don't think every, anyone's ever done a Chris Berninski plus Kathy Wood combo, but Bankless is about to do it. Right. Yeah, no, that, that conversation, I'm, I just expect to blow people's brains and hopefully mine as well. So looking forward to recording that later in the week. Also, right on your podcast feed right now is the third episode of Layer Zero with none other than Justin Drake. And I'm going, just going to leave that there because the conversation was so awesome. Enough said. Like Justin Drake's <laughs> Justin in your Drake, podcast what are you feed. Doing? So like, go listen to it right after you're done listening to this. Don't work. Don't play. Don't talk to your partner. Just listen to Bankless. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do, right? <laughs> All right, guys. We are going to get to the guests in just a minute. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Balancer is a powerful platform for flexible automated market makers. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. 
Balancer pools can make asset indices, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect the fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we use a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool using Balancer's asset managers. Balancer's vault architecture lets you trade between Balancer pools at a fraction of the cost versus trading on other platforms. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the balancer pools at app.balancer.fi. At Bankless Nation, we are super excited to have the Arbitrum team back on Bankless. Post-launch, they said they were going to launch in summer of 2021. And launch they did. It is still summer 2021. Guys, uh, Stephen, Harry, congrats on the launch. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us here. Yeah, we told you DeFi summer and, you know, it's... We got in, it's still summer. So we got in there. <laughs> it's still summer. So how are you guys feeling like post-launch? I mean, uh, what's I? it was launch week as we're recording this and launches don't always go well. How did this one go? Shockingly well. The, the, the biggest barrier to launch, and this is like a funny insider story, is we were planning on actually opening to users a couple hours earlier. And then... Amazon had a significant outage and there were a few of our things running, like there were a few, like our, our like block explorer was like running, our indexer was running on there and that went down and we were like, oh my God, like we need to solve this. They were like, should we just launch anyway? And then they were like, well, we didn't tell anyone 3 p.m. So no, we'll just, we'll just <laughs> <laughs> do you know, do you know, I wasn't sure, like, so at what point in time did you guys commit to launching in August? Um, in early August, is that when you committed? There was some commitment I saw on the Arbitrum Twitter and I was like biting my nails. I was like, oh, okay, it's getting toward the end of August. Are they gonna be able to do it? You know, it's August 30th, no launch. Are they gonna be able to do it? But you guys pulled it in, pulled it out of the hat, man. You just launched right at the last day and got this thing out there. Yeah, it was early August that we committed to uh, to doing that. And it was clear to us that, that we would get there and, um, yeah, ultimately, uh, you know, we 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 chose on the last day of August, but we were, you know, we, we were somewhat clear about that. I think we said in the post late August, and Ed gave a talk at uh, uh, SmartCon that day and said you should assume August thirty first unless you uh, unless we say it earlier. So uh, we tried to uh, at least set the expectations right there, but then uh, uh, it's also on a Tuesday, and you know, we previously done launches on a Friday, and then like you know, you go into the weekend, so like, all right, let's do it on a Tuesday this time in case you know, in case there's uh, some delays, we're not like stealing people's weekends. So, um, uh, yeah, so things went fabulously smoothly, uh, and so far so good. Um, you know, usage has been, uh, going up, um, a lot of value has been, been, uh, coming into the system. And I think overall, uh, the user sentiment, uh, from what we can tell has been pretty good. So we're super excited. Uh, this is the beginning, not the end, right? So there's, there's a lot more goodies to come, but, uh, you know, this was definitely, uh, a very important, uh, milestone for us. Just so we can just go ahead here. I was going to say the user feedback has just been, it's been so much fun, like reading about people having like good experiences using it. Like, you know, just like, you know, it was so easy to use. <laughs> because 
<laughs> people are definitely still at the stage of being shocked about that, which is right. pretty funny given that that's been like our like core focus. But to see that, you know, we actually pulled it off, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty great. And I should say, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, we should say that we have a new bridge UI coming next week. That's the one complaint we got that our, our bridge kind of looks like it's from 1995. Um, I can confirm that it's not from 1995. Um, I mean, but, that's uh, okay, though. I mean, people have used Curve. Have you guys seen the Curve oh, yeah. interface? I yes. mean, I don't know what decade that's from, maybe the 1980s. But um, yeah, we're used to these things in, in DeFi. And uh, it, as long as it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people have been very, you know, we've only gotten positive feedback uh, on things working. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do, give users... Uh, fast, uh, fast transactions, uh, cost savings, and um, really try to port the ecosystem. So excited that people are using it and, and building on it. So we, we have a ton of questions that we want to get through, kind of a, a grab bag of just a bunch of different topics. But before we get there, I want to just ground our listener with some context. Uh, so can we talk about the you know, the, the leading weeks and months that have come up to the actual launch, what was the rollout, uh, rollout plan? Like, what have you guys been doing in the last few months to really prepare for this launch date? Yeah, great question. So um, part of it was like social community and part of it was uh, technical, of course, um, and diligence. So, um, <clears throat> you know, there was a lot going into getting ready to do our our, our, there was a lot getting into uh, going into getting ready to see our mainnet developer um, our mainnet developer launch in May and a lot of you know getting the tech ready um, and making sure it was at a point of stability that we were ready for that. Then there was a lot of community organization and just giving people time. You know, we committed to a fair launch in which uh, different teams would have uh, enough time to to launch. Because the thing about DeFi and you know uh, you know smart contracts in general, but specifically DeFi, is it's all about the composability and the interaction. And uh, having a system where sort of uh, one app goes live at a time, is, it's, it's, it's not that useful. Um, it, it's problematic because so many apps have dependencies on others. So we really wanted to give you know, everyone the ability to, to set up as much as they could beforehand. And of course, we can't wait for everyone, but we tried to do that. And then uh, you know, we did you know, uh, some internal auditing, some external auditing during, during this time, uh, really to get you know, uh, more diligence uh, and confidence and did some uh, you know, additional feature requests. We tried to you know, limit new features coming in, but there's always some feature creep and like, oh, we got we just got to do that before before we go out the door. So um, a bunch of that for sure. But definitely, so it's part technical, part uh, social coordination, and just giving pe- people the ability to to launch and really trying to be fair and putting everyone on the same footing. Mm-hmm. So we all know these systems build themselves from the bottom up, right? And so we need we need that initial like bootstrapping flywheel phase to get launched. And I think you, all the users are like biting at the chomp or chomping, excuse me, chomping at the bit to get into Arbitrum. But uh, of course, uh, the, the things actually had to be there. So you guys needed to have some sort of like, you know, quiet period to allow the developers to get this, uh, so, you know, the Arbitrum native DeFi flywheel going. Um, so w- when it comes to actually launching, what, on a technical level, what does that mean? When we are like cutting the tape for the Arbitrum theme park, what, what is actually like different in the code that allows this to be launched? What is the launch? Yeah, I mean, that it was basically, well, it was two buttons. <laughs> <laughs> what colors were Just they? A big red, big red button, <laughs> the big green one. <laughs> Um, cause you know, essentially the only, the only difference in our system kind of over the past two months basically has been, has been the whitelist and we put in place basically that kind of mm-hmm. had developer teams coming in. And so kind of we had, we had had the, uh, you know, the, 
the you know it was really removing a feature was all we needed was 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 the launch process since it was we started without a whitelist because we had our test net and we, we put this in place for mainnet so that we could kind of move a little slowly as as kind of Stephen was describing get sort of you know get app, get uh, get dApps onboarded and kind of like help teams understand what they were doing and then we just had to cut that back out. Muted so right. I understand, guys, there's um, some training wheels right now on the system as well, like some governors. Um, what sort of governors are on the system currently and uh, and why are they there? Yeah, so um, right now there is a, uh, a limit on the max uh, transaction capacity in the system. That's uh, one, uh, one, one main uh, limitation, that, the main limitation that we have. And uh, the reason for that is um, uh, really to uh, just um, make sure the system stabilizes and and watch it before and watch it stabilize before sort of um, you know we really really up usage and give us also some time to uh, continue to improve and you know reduce reduce uh, you know improve performance and and uh, as time goes on. But the those uh, constraints were designed such that based on our our, uh, our projections of of usage, uh, no one will hit, and indeed we're nowhere. Or we're maybe 50x away from there, so we have uh, in, the, in the capacity we're seeing today. Um, so we we have significant capacity uh, until those uh, any of those constraints are hit. They're just sort of an upper bound um, to stop some bot from trying to do something that uh, um, you know a, a bit too crazy right now. But uh, average usage, I think, won't go um, anywhere uh, near there. But you know, the the thing that we've committed to is, and the other part of this is. Um, we still do maintain upgradability controls in the system, and indeed, uh, you know, there, there are two scenarios in which we use them, one in which we plan to, one in which we don't plan to. Uh, the first one is to uh, increase uh, performance over time and increase scaling over time. We'll have uh, at least some alpha here. We'll have uh, an update going going live quite soon that will re reduce fee costs. Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, we do a nice uh, fee, fee cost and fee reduction. So that that's the type of upgrade we plan on doing. And then there's a type of upgrade which we don't plan on doing, uh, which would be to respond to any security incident. But of course, we feel like we we need to have that upgradability in place for the time being uh, until the system fully um, um, gets um, uh, more more uh, you know running under runway under its belt and. Um, yeah, basically, um, but we try to be very, very open and honest about that. And so the two things is we call our, our Arbitrum One now in mainnet beta phase, and we're committed to only it will stay in beta until those until the system is fully decentralized. Um, so that's uh, commitment number one from us. And you know, we we want everyone to know exactly the state of the system. We think it's uh, really, really at a great place. But uh, ultimately, the the goal is full decentralization uh, for sure. And uh, we will uh, commit that to to uh, calling it a beta until we're there, and we're confident that we'll uh, get there uh, over the coming months. So, Stephen, I want to give people a sense for what it's like to kind of enter the uh, the Arbitrum uh, theme park, right? And so they're they're in the mainnet Ethereum theme park right now, and now there's this this sub sub theme park uh, called Arbitrum that has just you know cut the tape, and so users can enter, and they enter through this token bridge, and you basically enter. Uh, by uh, moving some of your assets from Ethereum mainnet to Arbitrum, and you do it primarily through this bridge. Now, we talked about in our past conversation, there will be all sorts of other bridges in the future, all sorts of other ways to get into the theme park, but this is the main bridge, maybe the most decentralized bridge um, to and from Ethereum. So you transfer your ETH or you transfer your ERC-20, and then once you're on the other side, basically, you, you in MetaMask or something, you just switch around your network. So rather than mainnet, yeah, um, you switch your MetaMask wallet or your browser wallet 
to uh, read from the Arbitrum mainnet. And in this new theme park, we've got like many of the same rides. I was scrolling through this earlier. Uh, and I mean, these are all of our friends, our, our DeFi friends, right? We've got Uniswap, SushiSwap, Balancer. They are all deployed there. I think many more are coming. Um, Ave, I'm not sure if they're deployed there, but I'm looking forward to when they are. Um, except in this theme park with all, all of these similar friends, um, everything's cheaper, right? So it used to cost $80 to use the Uniswap ride. And in Arbitrum, how much does it cost? Maybe like $10 or something now, $5, something like that. Um, can you give us a sense for what the the typical user experiences on the other side in terms of like fee savings and the rides that are available to them? Yeah, I mean, I think right now things are running at a, around yeah ten percent of the cost of Ethereum, roughly speaking. Um, I think that we're we're working on some optimizations in the pipeline that will get that down even more. Uh, but obviously, that that's still a pretty nice improvement over using Ethereum uh, using the base layer today. So we wanted to sort of, you know, not, not hold things up um, just to make things more perfect. Um, in, ter in terms of applications, it's, there's a lot live already. There's a lot more coming. Um, no matter, and there, there's a lot of awesome teams working on this, no matter how, there, there's always like, you know, some last minute things that need to be done. So we were hoping that, it, that, that as many as possible people would be live, you know, when we went live. There are a lot of people who are going to be coming, you know, who are going to be coming live over the next week or two um, as they kind of finish up their development process and, and, uh, and, and fully ship. I'd say in terms of users, the most sort of, you know, the, 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 the prices being cheaper are, are huge. But the other thing that's just so massive is, is the faster confirmation time mm -hmm. is just that feeling of being able to click a button and getting the result of your transaction kind of within seconds as opposed to sort of what people are used to, used to on, on, on mainnet, which is massively better with 1559, but, but still takes some time. Um, and, and so that, that's the other kind of big angle there. One question I have is, um, I, I like to parse apart the differences between the Ethereum gas markets, of which we're all used to. We generally all know things, uh, utilities like um, gas now, or going into Etherscan and seeing like that like loading bar, which is an estimation. And, you know, we, we're all used to seeing gas, right? We're all generally familiar with the gas markets on Ethereum and how that impacts gas price. Can you guys compare and contrast like gas markets on Arbitrum and how they might be the same or different with how people are used to transacting on, on Ethereum? And like, for example, like how does the actual $10 for a Uniswap transfer, how does that number actually emerge? Like how is that number decided? Yeah, absolutely. So, so most of the, you know, the, the, the costs are split up kind of in using the system in, into a variety of different categories, but, but actually, right, most of the costs are actually the costs that are being paid in Ethereum fees. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a roll-up, every, every Arbitrum transaction gets posted to Ethereum. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's kind of only the data of the transaction, of course, not, not the execution, but we are paying, you know, and, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to remember the exact number, but I think our, our sequencer has has uh, spent like 23 ETH already in gas fees on, on L1. Um, does it make that, a transaction every single Ethereum block or how does that uh, happen? Yeah, so so it, it batches things up. Mm -hmm. So it will collect some number of, of Arbitrum transactions and currently kind of once every once every six minutes-ish, mm -hmm. um, it'll post onto, it'll post kind of a whole batch of transactions onto Ethereum. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, there, there's kind of an, there's an interesting kind of factor here, which is sort of the, the security model. And I like to be really clear on this. Until it's posted to Ethereum, you're still to some degree trusting the sequencer. But then six minutes later, 
um, or, or well, within six minutes because it's posting, you know, when, whenever the next one is, now you're at basically full Ethereum security. Um, and, and the upside of that is you get super fast confirmations and know exactly what the result of your transaction will be almost immediately. Um, do you kind of see that in the user interface uh, when you're making transactions, like the, uh, the, like the you know, state of a confirmation and how secure it is and how it evolves? So we're still working on, on kind of on, on figuring out a way that we can display that. There's a problem, which is basically right now, all of our effort has gone to sort of how do we make Arbitrum fit into existing Ethereum tooling? We haven't had the, like, the, the pull to, you know, let's say, have, have MetaMask change its, its UI to, to reflect these things. Um, which, you know, I think, you know, the, the hope is definitely that, you know, we'll, we will, you know, get there sooner rather than later. Um, so for now, it, it's relatively hard and we try to communicate it and write about it. And, and for your average user who's transacting in small value, it doesn't really yeah. matter. Um, for, for kind of, you know, for, for people like um, liquidity providers and, and for people like, you know, especially for, for a number of teams we're working on who are going to be providing these fast bridges for moving liquidity back and forth. Those are the teams that we've kind of like talked through a lot, kind of these various sort of security model questions, since they're the ones especially who kind of would take, who will kind of be, be most kind of deep into that and, and you know, take a lot of the, the risk on and, and make decisions about what they want to do there. Do you know, big picture. So Harry, you said um, Arbitrum so far has maybe burnt like, you know, or um, 25 ETH or so. Um, and then like, I, I wonder how long it will be. I'm showing the ultrasound.money leaderboard, the ETH burn leaderboard, I wonder how long it'll be in, until most of these um, leaderboard candidates are actually layer twos, right? I mean, because this is what we're talking about. This is the, the scalability roadmap for not just Arbitrum, but all of Ethereum. You might like start your entire life as a user on a layer two and live there the entire time, uh, but you know, settle ultimately on top of Ethereum mainnet. I'm curious what you guys think. How long do you think that'll be before uh, some layer two, maybe Arbitrum starts to rise up the charts in this burn leaderboard? That's a great yeah. question. I, I, would, I would say definitely before the end of the year. Wow. Wow. In the, in the all-time leaderboard? Well, the, I mean, this is... This is um... This is 24 hours okay. here, David. Oh, 24 hours. Yeah. Okay. So they okay. could do okay. a 24 okay. hour leaderboard. Okay. <laughs> so no, not the, not the old time. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some time to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> catch up to the NFTs. They're going pretty fast. Um, I think within a 24 hour period of time, there will be L2s who are by far the, the biggest gas guzzlers, um, particularly as like a bunch of, you know, the NFT action migrates onto, uh, onto layer twos as, mm. as, you know, I think a lot of people are, are excited for. Oh yeah. yeah, interesting. All of these apps that we see burning a lot of ether, they probably have the incentives to move onto layer twos the most, which would just like, you know, take all of their ETH burning, A, reduce it by putting it on an L2, but then also have it under the L2 umbrella of ETH burning. Oh, that that's interesting. Absolutely. And like, you know, just just like, you know, quick, quick glance, a number of those, you know, a number of those burners are already uh launched on uh on Arbitrum. And then we'll have to have like the second level leaderboards, like, okay, so Arbitrum's burning all this ETH, and who's actually responsible for burning all this ETH on Arbitrum? So then you might see a leaderboard that looks like <laughs> this one again. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have nested leaderboards here. 
<laughs> I want to I want to go back and and finish the conversation about how gas fees are actually determined on on Arbitrum. Uh, we, 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 on you know, Ethereum, it's just a function of like how much block space demand how, how is in you know obviously more demand makes you know the gas fees go up. How does that work one to one with Arbitrum, or are there any other details that we need to talk about? Yeah, sorry. I guess we, we ended up getting a little off topic in the- Yeah, no worries. Know, it, was all, it was all good. It was all good combo. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically kind of I started by saying kind of the, the, the main component right now is L1 costs because basically the system is not congested. There's, pretty, there's plenty of capacity in L2. We're nowhere near sort of the limit of how much the L2 can do, but there's always going to be this sort of base cost that isn't, you know, even if one person is using the system, you're, you're still that, that person is going to have to pay for their costs in layer one. Mm -hmm. The thing that could happen, and, and you know, will will happen at some point, um, as it does on every chain, um, but certainly we're nowhere close to yet, is is congestion in layer two, is mm -hmm. the kind of the actual L2 capacity um, hitting its limit, um, and, and at that point, basically there will be sort of similar to um, similar to Ethereum, and and we took a lot of inspiration from from fifteen fifty nine. Um, a, a gas market um, that kind of where where kind of it will you know the the people who are you know it, the the people who the, who value the block space most will be the ones who uh, mm -hmm. who get it. Um, which you know we'd love to have room for everybody. We hope we can stay ahead of the curve in terms of expanding our capacity. But if if we don't, um, that that's what'll happen. Mm -hmm. So when you guys uh, deploy a transaction to the Ethereum main chain every six minutes, sometimes the Ethereum main chain is extremely congested. So that actually turns, could turn into a, an expensive operation to deploy those transactions every six minutes. Uh, how, how are those fees paid and how are the size of Ethereum L1 fees uh, related to the users who are paying gas fees on Arbitrum? Are those two things connected? Yeah, a, a little indirectly, but yes, I, sh I should say there's, there's a caveat to my every six minutes thing, which is if the sequencer, see, if the sequencer is smart enough that if it sees a spike in gas prices, mm. it will wait a little longer to post its next batch mm -hmm. <laughs> to see if the price goes down, which we added in after we ended up paying for some very expensive batches. Mm -hmm. um, so. And EIP-1559 helps with that, right? Are you guys ta like actually tapping into EIP-1559 as a gas oracle? Um, yeah, we, we, we're absolutely using it. We're going to be using it more um, for, for kind of to improve the L2 gas oracle. We're already using it for the sequencer itself. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's helped. And if you look at the graph, it helps a lot. But we, we still had a day where the, where the base fee was at like 2,000 guay for a little bit there. <laughs> so it's, it's massively smoothed it out, but it's still mm -hmm. kind of bumpy. Okay. Um, Okay, there, there are so many things to talk about and like we're going down all these little micro rabbit holes all at once. But, but uh, let's go back to the question of how does a, a gas fee for yes. an L1 deployment connect to a user paid fee for just a normal Uniswap transaction on Arbitrum? Absolutely. So, so kind of the general, the general idea is there's kind of these various components and, and kind of there's a view that the Arbitrum chain has of the Ethereum gas price that it sort of you know, tries to regularly update. And then it uses that when evaluating the costs. Mm -hmm. So it's not sort of exactly one-to-one. -one. Um, we see come in essentially, for example, how much call data was your transaction? From that, we can infer how much did the sequencer have to pay to post your transaction in terms of the call data. Um, and from that, um, we can then kind of figure out how much we, we should charge you. There's, there's a kind of an interesting little, and I'll go down, you know, this is, this is a bit of a nerdy technical digression, but it's kind of interesting. Um, we can't actually use the price, the gas price on the chain when the sequencer batch is posted in order to charge you. 
um, that doesn't work. And there, there's a very simple reason for that, actually, which is that the C you're getting your finality very quickly. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to tell you exactly how much your transaction costs within seconds, mm -hmm. but it's not going to actually be posted for, for minutes. And so we have to essentially make our kind of best approximation guess mm -hmm. as, as to how much it'll cost you um, and, and then sort of apply it um, when you actually make the transaction. And the way we kind of deal with that is we basically cost average a little bit. And so we have it set up so that on average, kind of the cost will be fully paid you might pay a little more or a little less than the sequencer did when it posted your transaction, but on average, you'll you'll be kind of better off because it'll sort of regulate how much you might need to pay. Mm -hmm. And this is all made relatively much easier in the fact that you guys use Ether to pay for gas on Arbitrum, and then also Ether is needed to pay for gas on Ethereum, so that efficiency is there. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, essentially, so you're you're, and we're collecting fees in L2. We're not collecting fees in L1. Right. Um, so the the fee the portion of the 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 fees you pay when you make an Arbitrum transaction are kind of split up and only a portion of them goes to the sequencer. That, that's kind of to pay for the sequencer's costs. Mm -hmm. Those kind of accumulate to the sequencer in layer two, at, you know, as kind of, you know, and will show up as, you know, liquidity in the system essentially. Um, and then this, and then kind of our plan there, although we haven't actually done it for the first time yet, but our plan there is then basically to automate the sequencer, basically withdrawing periodically. So once a day, it withdraws all the fees that it's collected in L2 back to L1. And then a week later, it will be able to sort of roll that into the funds it uses to uh, to pay for posting uh, users' transactions. Okay, ju just a few more questions on this thread. Um, when so when the Arbitrum L2 makes a transaction to Ethereum, it costs money. Uh, when there are more users on Arbitrum and there are more people to spread that L1 transaction uh, cost across, does that actually reduce the cost per, on a per user basis if there are more users? Yeah, so there's kind of there, there's there's flat there's there's fixed costs and there's variable costs, right? Mm -hmm. So the call data of your transaction is is a fixed cost. So that mm -hmm. you know there's some number of bytes of data that are kind of that describe your transaction that's fixed. Mm -hmm. There's also kind of there, sorry that's 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 kind of very that's based on your transaction. There are also other costs which are kind of flat per batch mm -hmm. um, and, and fairly significant costs. Um, and, and so we have kind of this extra, and, and basically the way we're handling that is that that's divided over kind of all of the users who have transactions in their batch. And that's just overhead. So the more users we have, the more we can just sort of divide that over the users until it becomes completely negligible. So there'll be some savings. There is sort of this whole component, which kind of won't be reduced because it is just you specifically, but it will definitely go down. So Keeping on, keeping on in this whole gas markets conversation, where can you guys? Uh, I, I like to think of things visually, so I'm thinking of a loading bar with like optim or excuse me, uh, Arbitrum somewhere on this the you know full saturation of the maximum capacity that it could ever have. Where is it on that spectrum from a, on a zero to one hundred level? Like where is it when in terms of like its actual uh, ceiling of a throughput? Is that like twenty percent maximum capacity, forty percent maximum capacity? I know you guys have it throttled at the very genesis. Like is that is that even the right frame of mind? And where is it? Yeah. Wait. So so just to sorry just to clarify, there's like mm -hmm. there's there's three numbers here. There's like how much we're how much we're actually getting right now, what mm -hmm. the limit is right now, or and what like the theoretical max limit is. Which of those yes. were you? Uh, all of them. I want all of them. All of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also want all of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I think you know. So in terms of you know the the you know to start with you know the the actual theoretical limit 
we don't even know. We know what like our we know where our current version of our software maxes out, mm-hmm. and it maxes out around I think. Um, I think we could we could theoretically, if we wanted to, if we were not really too concerned about state bloat, um, run probably with about uh, 10x the capacity with the software today, and that's mm-hmm. without sort of a whole bunch of pipelines of optimizations that we have planned over the next kind of months that will that will significantly improve there. 10x um, the capacity. What's that in reference to? Yeah. So so that's like our our Arbitrum doesn't use has kind of its own type of gas mm-hmm. um, that we call Arb gas, just to mm-hmm. distinguish it between from regular Ethereum gas. Um, and, so, and it's a different metric. Yeah. Um, similar idea, but yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the main thing that we think about in terms of kind of scaling, um, and, and that kind of you know encompasses you know the the computation and the and the state. Uh, costs and kind of the way we have it configured right now, because we want it to be relatively conservative, is to target handling about an Ethereum's worth of traffic. So um, right now, Harry, it's about an Ethereum's worth of traffic, and you're saying maybe the the maximum is about 10x that. So it'd be 10x uh, current day Ethereum's traffic. And and that's on the that's in terms of kind of you know. So there's a lot of you know. That 10x would be kind of there's there's a lot of considerations here. There's like how expensive and hard do we want to make it to run a node? The mm. more we increase that limit, the harder it is to run a node. And there's sort of a you know an open discussion here and a set of trade-offs as to you know on on one extreme side you have Ethereum where it's like you know we should be able to run on Raspberry Pis. Uh, on the other side, and I wish I had a better example than this, but I'll, I'll just use this example. On the other side, we have EOS with the you know 21 master nodes and data centers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're targeting, you know, somewhere in between those two. I think more on the Ethereum side than the EOS side, um, but there's, but that's kind of, you know, where where one chunk of wiggle room is, and the other chunk is just. I think there's a, a massive amount of sort of optimizing we have planned, and that that chunk, by the way, is the is sort of the 10x. That's mm-hmm. the 10x. Like if we wanted to become EOS, we could do 10x today. Um, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. The other side is basically optimizations. This is our initial. We've been. This is our. There's so many different things we want. We we have on our list of, of to dos that will decrease that will increase capacity and decrease costs, and we've had to aggressively slash the to do list in order to ship something, mm-hmm. um, which I think is an important lesson for anybody trying to ship. You can't have everything, um, and I think you know one of the one of you know one of the kind of ways we're going to be able to take advantage of the fact that we're kind of in the short term retaining this upgradeability. Um, is, is in being able to kind of provide these improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I should just say on the, just to finish out the, the rest of that question, in terms of actual capacity, I think right now, I think we peaked at around 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of at the peak when it was kind of everybody jumping in. Um, so, you know, even with, with kind of the targeted one Ethereum worth of capacity right now, I think that we have kind of a pretty good amount of uh, headroom um, before kind of users need to think about congestion. One last question on capacity, right? This is all for Arbitrum 1, yes. which is one of possibly many different Arbitrums. We talked about this in our, in our June conversation, that in the future, there might not just be Arbitrum, like there'll, there'll be Arbitrum 2 and Arbitrum 3 and all of these different Arbitrum universes. Is that for every universe, another potentially 10x if you decided to, to grow like EOS? Um, or uh, are we talking? Or am I not speaking? Like, am I not phrasing that correctly? No. You, so you, I think you're you're phrasing exactly right. And and the thing is, so there there are two different things at play here. There's the question of, there's one way to think about this is imagine that like the entire Ethereum all it was doing was like supporting arbitrage traffic, right? That everything was on L2 and all like the Ethereum's entire capacity 
was was like our return traffic. So then what could we get? And well, then then there are two. So the constraints that Harry gave you is what we're comfortable running in a single in a single rollup. What we you know, performance wise, sync wise, because even if you could do like tens of thousands of transactions per second, uh, you wouldn't want those in one rollup because then the you know the the cost of running the infrastructure of that in the in the, the state growth would be uh, unmanageable. But um, when you so you could use you know the so the Ethereum traffic you wouldn't use it all for one rollup, but you could have multiple. Deploy, deployments of rollups, each which get the security of Ethereum because you know they're rollups and they put post their data on Ethereum, and each one of them has this level of capacity independently. So there is some fixed band, fixed limit based on you know the amount of data you can post to Ethereum, but like even this 10x number is nowhere near that. So we have like uh, you know way, way, way you know a ton of room to run uh, multiple rollups, and indeed we're seeing like the first instance of this right now. It's on testnet, but Reddit's running an arbitrary rollup on testnet, and that's going to be a completely separate, um, completely separate rollup, right? And these two things, they'll each have the same capacity, mm-hmm. and they'll just be completely separate. And both, and you could do a third and a fourth and a fifth too if you wanted to. They won't compose with each other, but they'll both they'll all be rollups and compose with everything in their in their in their ecosystem. Steven, since you brought it up, I, I got to ask right now, uh, any spoilers you can give us with what Reddit's up to? Because they 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 posted that they were selecting Arbitrum, which is absolutely huge news. Mm-hmm. They did Congrats. so because um, they, they, they said they wanted a decentralized and open solution, which is like bravo Reddit for actually like figuring this out. A- any hints you can give us on what those guys are up to? So... Uh, you know, I think we've been working with them for a long time and they have a really, really fantastic team, like an, an incredible team. And um, I think they have a lot, a, 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 you know, a lot of really good things to come. And I know they're just starting on testnet and they're, uh, and they have, I think some really good plans coming, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, um, I, the truth is, you know, we, uh, on the one hand, like we coordinate with them on the, te- on the te- technically, um, and I don't definitely don't know all their plans and what they're planning on doing on their rollup chain. And um, I know, I think, um um, I don't want to speak for them, uh, unfortunately on that, but I, I would say that, you know, we're very excited to work with them and, you know, we were coordinating closely with them and they're really a fantastic team. And I think we'll see excellent things, uh, come out of that team because number one, they have like a world-class team and number two, like they get it right. They, they have, this is Reddit, but they get that they want to be on Ethereum. They want to use a roll-up and, you know, they understand the trade-offs and, and they, 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 uh, um, they're really just a really, really, uh, incredibly impressive team. Well, I think the entire community is excited. So you got to tell them to stop by Bankless uh, mm-hmm. and tell us more about it sometime. I'll let them know. <laughs> one one last question on the the dynamics of the scalability side of of Arbitrum, and then we can go on to other subjects. Um, say say in a maximally successful version of an op, uh, Arbitrum rollup, uh, there's you guys are hitting the max capacity on the block space. The fee market emerges. Fees start to get collected on the layer two, and there's a lot of economic energy. Could, in theory, you increase the frequency that you deploy a transaction to Ethereum? Maybe you go from six minutes down to three minutes. Is this a parameter that can be adjusted? Oh. And what are the what are the properties that would um, be make that a rational choice to to tinker with that number? Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, again, to get like, to get, you know, to throw this like slightly technical, the, the sequencer has a target for, for how much gas it'll, it'll spend per batch. And currently, you know, if it, if it doesn't hit that target after six minutes, or it might be seven minutes, it posts a batch because it doesn't want to keep, you know, it doesn't want to kind of keep it in this sort of less than fully secure state for, for very long. If it hits that target sooner, it'll just post its batch, you know, immediately. So we could we could easily get into the point where you know I think as usage picks up you know it'll start to be you know it'll be every three minutes 
then every two minutes, you know, at some point we're, we're going to get down to every block or every other block potentially. And we could do every block now, but then you'd have the opposite part of this problem because there's not that much usage right now. It's the few transactions in that block would pay the entire overheads. And that's, that's the, the needle you want to thread here. That's why uh, we're doing this six minute thing now because it, it gets, you know, an, enough transactions at current volume to uh, make the overhead, uh, you know, uh, relatively low and not, uh, you know, you don't pay most of that in your, in your transaction. Because remember, we're posting data to Ethereum and there's a minimal, you know, our, we, have, we have significant overhead uh, on, on the batch side, but even if you just think about like, you know, 21,000 gas and minimal, you know, Ethereum, uh, um, you know, base, uh, you know, the Ethereum minimum, um, like, if there was only one transaction we were posting every block, then your transaction would now have an overhead of that of that price. So obviously users don't want that. So we think six minutes it still gives you um, you know a, a a a pretty quick finality, but that will only go down over time as as the transaction volumes increase and there's more users available immediately to amortize the batch cost. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their earn program where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version two has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield. And all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. So guys, you have shipped something really cool. Um, folks can use it. Uh, more apps will be deployed on it over time. There's about 25 million in liquidity. We're recording this a little bit early, folks. You guys will see this Tuesday. You get a little over 50 now. Uh, okay, so over 50 now, which is super awesome and impressive. So it's growing very fast. Um, let's have this conversation because I, I want to be real with you guys for a minute, right? So 
Um, Bankless has a dog in this fight. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> here's what I mean. Okay, we want Layer Two uh, to win, right? We be- because we want the most bankless, most decentralized financial system to win, right? It's we do not want Binance Chain to take all the quote unquote DeFi from the ecosystem. I know you guys don't want to you know disparage. Uh, Binance Chain or anybody else that those aren't your words. There are words like legitimately. We want layer two to win. We want the Ethereum ecosystem to thrive. We think decentralization matters. The ability to run your own node in Ethereum is important, but here's the problem. Um, Ethereum is kind of a victim of its own success, right? So particularly in bull markets, no one complains about this during bear markets, but in bull markets, we're in an NFT mania. You know, gas fees, you know, 200 guay, 300 guay. Um, it's expensive to do things on Ethereum because everyone wants to do it at the exact same time, okay? So now we have layer two that has been long, long promised. And now it's actually here. You guys have built it. You guys have shipped it. We've got real apps. That's awesome. Now I want to have a conversation about um, how layer two wins, how specifically Arbitrum wins against the the more high throughput, um, centralized- Values um, compromised. Values compromised, we would say ETH killers that are out there, right? And so like nothing against them. This is not a, um, this is not a fixed pie. I think their success will also breed, Ethereum success will also breed layer two success. So I, d- I don't want to couch this as like a, a um, you know fixed pie kind of zero sum game because it's not everybody does end up winning but what we hope wins is decentralized values and I think layer two represents that you guys have taken the time it's freaking hard I mean how long have you guys been working on this six years something like that it's hard to get to where you you've gotten today but now we're here now I want to have a conversation about how Arbitrum wins how layer two wins and here's what you guys need so let's talk about liquidity first all right. So um, all of these other layer one chains right now, they have these massive liquidity programs going on, okay? So they are paying users to come to their theme park, right? It's very easy, right? Like, here's our theme park. We've got these rides and everyone who enters gets 20 bucks, right? That's going to attract crowds, all right? So we've got maybe that problem first. How does Arbitrum attract the liquidity that it needs? It doesn't have... Uh, a liquidity incentivization program now. I don't know if it will in the future. I don't know if you can comment on that, but let's let's uh, dice apart this liquidity question first. Uh, Steven, what do you think? So I remember when I came on last time, I told you, well, I don't want to say any specifics, but I know that there are some application layer teams that are planning on doing liquidity mining. And, and a bunch of those have actually gone live already. I know uh, SushiSwap's doing liquidity mining on Arbitrum. I know Dodo's doing a big liquidity mining program. I think Swapper's doing one. And there are probably more. Uh, those are the ones at least that, I, that I'm aware of over the past few days. And there, and there are more to come that I'm, I'm aware of as well. So um, I think um, the application level, level liquidity programs are, are important. That's, that's what we have on, on Ethereum as well. Um, you know, different projects run liquidity mining uh, on Ethereum, of course. Um, and so I do think we can, can compete there. Um, uh, for sure. Uh, we've seen liqui- liquidity, you know, pour into the system and we know that there's a lot, lot more of these programs to come. Um, and, um, and, you know, we, I think uh, we're actually very, very happy with the trajectory of liquidity coming into the system. It's been super fast. And, um, but like, you know, um, 
you know, we want it to happen gradually. So uh, um, as gradually, you know, I guess, uh, you know, $50 million in, in, in three days is, is, is fast enough for us right now. And I think we'll, it will ramp up over time, particularly uh, with these programs. And, and uh, in, in terms of like the, the more general though, um, the values I think are, are, what, are what are important. And that, that's why we're doing this. You know, we could have just not done this and cloned Ethereum and just changed a few parameters and boom, you have, you know, hey, we could call AWS a blockchain if you wanted to, and you have a really great <laughs> Uh, but uh, that's not what we believe in. And I think ultimately the values, the values will win, but I think it also has to do with the the thought leadership a lot, a lot, right? Because a user coming, coming in that doesn't have a background, like this is day one for them in crypto, they don't really understand the difference. And they, what they do understand those fees, right? So they see I'm paying a low fee here, a high fee here, and they don't understand the fees, but the people that like are actually building this vision um, and or have been in crypto a little longer, so the the you know the project leaders and and the builders, most of them I do understand this. And you know the thing we know about Ethereum is that the community is stronger than any we've we've been a part of uh, ever in any. Uh, but it's 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 uh, super super strong the Ethereum community, and um, yeah, definitely the you know the strongest community. In crypto, I'm probably going to upset a lot of people by saying that uh, Bitcoin maxis uh, that watch. I guess they're, <laughs> um, but you know, we, we think it's an incredibly uh, strong, strong community, and uh, the values really, really shine through. And it's, it's a philosophical mo- movement. And uh, ultimately, though, there have to be the thought leaders that that not like are dictators on these values, but but kind of are in the sense that they they won't compromise and won't go to other places. And 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 number two is. A really education, explaining what these values are, what we're doing here, and what the risks are. And hey, if we if we you know uh, call AWS a blockchain, we're back to where we started, and we haven't really accomplished anything. So I, I think that that's going. And 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 the the good thing is that there are so many people that have these values, and it's such a strong community, and and we see those playing out, and and that's what we're playing into. But but ultimately, I think you know uh, the thought leaders have a very very uh, important uh, educational mission here. And but the liquidity, I think, you know, the incentives uh, on Arbitrum, I think, will uh, have already we've already seen some and they'll continue to compete with with, uh, I think, other other chains. And um, again, we've just been impressed by the by the adoption that we've seen just in, you know, we're only three days old and it's, it's been pretty. You, you know what people tell me, sort of the skeptics tell us is like um, users don't care about decentralization. Right. And um, like, I, I wonder your take on that. And. That may that may be true for a subset of users, or even for for many users, right? And they do definitely care about gas fees, and I, I understand that. But um, I also think there are different classes of users. When people say users, who are they talking about, right? So Reddit is a user, for example, and that's why it was so fantastic to see Reddit make the choice that it did, but also state the reasons it did. If if people haven't seen that Reddit post. We'll, we'll, we'll include a uh, link in the show notes so you can uh, look at why they selected Arbitrum. And it was decentralization. It was decentralized values. So I, I'm, I'm curious uh, your, your take on this. Um, the noise of liquidity, right? Anyone can incent, uh, I guess, liquidity by like pushing a token out there and uh, giving people free money and then you know traffic will, will come. But are, are you seeing that builders, that class of users, are preferring decentralization? Is that a thesis that's going to to hold true? Or do you think Reddit is kind of a one-off? Um, yeah, what do you think, Stephen? I, I think it holds true. I think, uh, uh, not to name other chains, but you mentioned one, a lot of the projects that we see are on other chains are more derivative of what happens on Ethereum. A lot of the, the users that are builders are really... Um, in, the innovative, in, a lot, most of the innovation that we see happens happens on Ethereum. 
And, and that's important because you really want that. You want the, the innovator's product because often, you know, it, we've seen this in so, so many times, someone copies something and, oh, they didn't get that critical fix and it's buggy and dangerous to use because um, they missed something uh, kind of important. So um, I do think, yeah, the, the, that, that class of users uh, is absolutely on Ethereum and, and basically almost exclusively on Ethereum. And the other way I like to frame this whole thing, and this is something I've been saying for a long time, the way I view Arbitrum is basically a common denominator. So there are those users that care about security and you know we're among those and decentralization. And, and there are those users that care about costs. And you can, you know, Arbitrum is a place, you know, in, in my opinion, where all those users can come together and say, uh, we're not, you know, we, we don't have the cost of BSC, right? We're not, we're, we're not, or uh or whatever. Uh, we don't have, you know, the costs of, of a side chain. But it's much, much lower than Ethereum and it's affordable. And the cost will go down over time. That's number one. But we do maintain the, you know, the security derived from Ethereum. So it's a common denominator. And why is a common denominator important? Why do I care where you go? Why do I care to be in the same place? And that's because the magic in this ecosystem, the magic in DeFi is really about composability. And we're much, much, much better off if, if there's, uh, you know, concentrated liquidity and the DeFi apps are in one, in one location. So, hey, I might say, you know, I don't really care. I can just run my own chain. And I'll, I, I'll, I'll call that secure. And I'm, I, that's good enough for me. And the, and the fees will be super cheap. But I actually want to be with you also on the same chain. So, and you have users with different values. And that's where the common denominator becomes important. We think, you know, we've hit a sweet spot where we can make those who are fee sensitive happy and make those who are uh, security sensitive happy. And also, of course, um, um, you know, um, invite and, and be a part of the Ethereum community as we do this. One thing that I really enjoy about the Ethereum community, and, and Stephen, you touched on this, is that the values of the alike technologies will attract a certain set of users, right? And these are the users that do care to run their own nodes and do care about decentralization. Yet, the scale, scaling that those values to the whole entire world is probably not going to happen. People want to not experience Ethereum and have Ethereum and all of us L2s be in the background. And so for those people, in my mind, they are going to respond to incentives. And you talked about the liquidity mining incentives of all of the apps on, on Arbitrum, and that's that's going to work out decently well. Um, but we are going up against uh, Avalanche, which has a $180 million war chest for liquidity mining incentives. And then Phantom just rolled out a $300 million um, war chest for the same sort of incentives, right? And you know, we all know people will respond to incentives. This, so is, I think, this is David naming names, not you guys, by the way. David's naming yeah. names here. You know, they, these are just facts. These, these, are, these are war chests that they have to incentivize users, right? And they have these war chests because they have their own native token, which establishes their own treasury so my question to you guys is like are you guys going to have like a native token to establish some sort of treasury to do some yield farming like is this or what, what about all these yield, yield farming uh, uh opportunities that we have on l2s is this something that you guys have in your roadmap so right now what we've launched is we've launched with with fees but what i can say is um the fee revenue is such that um you know paid in ETH, of course but it's such that um it's designed not only to uh you know uh, reimburse us and, and and keep the company going, but also uh, also enough to um, you know share with validators that we've discussed very openly, and we have some good validators coming on board that will be getting that fee revenue. And I personally think that if you know if 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 the fee revenue grows to a point um, uh, where I think it's going to grow, that that uh, we'll have uh, um, significant uh, war chest as well to to uh, you know share with people in the ecosystem. So I don't know exactly. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we 
we, we focus very, very much on the tech, and that's where we started right now. We put out a product, uh, and we're happy with the adoption of. But and, and you know, we have to watch the watch 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 how these fees collect over time. But one thing which I can tell you, which we don't plan to do, is we don't plan to um, just say, all right, you know, this is our fee revenue. We plan on on reinvesting that in the ecosystem, and and our projections are that um, you know over time. Um, this will be significant, and it will it will give it will give us an edge. So I don't know, um, you know, we haven't committed to any exact mechanism or exact process of how that's going to work. But I think we're we're very very sensitive to it for sure. And um, but ultimately, Arbitrum is a community project, and when we say it's fully decentralized, we mean that um, you know that you know that's not to say that we obviously don't benefit from it, and we won't be. Um, um, but we won't be taking fee revenue from it, but it won't be exclusively us by any chance, by any point. And we will, uh, I think, have significant resources to reinvest in the ecosystem. I think resources, you know, as significant as some of those numbers that you that you mentioned or more. So um, right now, we're not really feeling the pressure to do that only because the liquidity is flowing in. There's a lot of excitement. People are sort of, you know, uh, checking out the theme park, walking around, uh, looking at the rides, uh, going on them. But, but you know, there may come a point uh, where we're... Um, where, like you said, incentives talk to people. And I think we will have uh, um, a good way, you know, we're thinking a lot about that right now. And um, and um, I, I don't think that we'll be left in the fold. Uh, I think it's already impressive, like just a, a few days in, you're already over, you know, 50 million in liquidity. So, I mean, the liquidity may flow without incentives, you know, I guess uh, if, if you have the right product, then you shouldn't need to pay people to uh, to use your theme park. Um, Though it does help <laughs> sometimes. We're also I, I, out like an ecosystem fund. These are other right. things that we're that we're that we're you know. So there there are many mechanics of how you can um, distribute. You know, some of them go to the, obviously. There's a difference whether it goes to developers, the end users. There are a lot of uh, internal things which we're which we're considering. And basically, you know, the bottom line is one thing, which is how do we reinvest in, in, our, in our community? Um, you know, given the the way the system is set up, how do we reinvest resources in Arbitrum and in Arbitrum community, in Arbitrum community? Because ultimately that, that's our goal. Let me ask a, another related question, just still on the topic of, you know, how does layer two win? Um, and this is a question with respect to composability. Okay. So I think if you're a high throughput chain that makes some decentralization sacrifices, namely, um, you don't provide the ability for a regular user to run a um, a, a node that's not validating, um, or that's not uh, like val validating blocks. Then you can have higher throughput in your you know like your your single chain instance, uh, and maybe there's less a need for of for composability, right? So if you could do a, a you know ten x or a hundred x inside of your main chain without, you know, by sacrificing decentralization and you can provide composability, right? That that's, what's competing against Ethereum and all of these layer twos, which kind of fracture some of the liquidity. So if I go bridge from mainnet to Ethereum right now, uh, I have access to Uniswap in the Arbitrum theme park and I have access to SushiSwap, but um, yeah, I don't have all the trading pairs that I would on mainnet. I have, you know, less liquidity. So my slippage costs are going to be higher for, for that sort of trade. Um, can you talk to us about that? Um, is that going to be a chink in the armor, do you think, for layer twos? And how does Arbitrum and the other layer twos solve for this composability splintered liquidity type issue? Yeah, it, it's, a, it, it's a great question. Um, there's 
there's a lot of really awesome projects right now that are working on composability. There's, there's so many, you know, there's, it, like, I, I keep learning about new ones. Like, there's a few, like, you know, the few that, like, I've seen for the longest are, are um, Connects Top and, and Seller, um, who've been working on kind of these sorts of problems for a long time. And, and there's kind of more and more. It, it, there's this, like, weird thing where the blockchain space is really weird because everybody got super used to composability, to sort of synchronous composability. And, and started thinking that like, that's like the only way to do things well, but the entire rest of the web is asynchronous. It's like a very foreign thing. And there's, there's all sorts of ways people have figured out to kind of build in these environments where, where you can't just, you know, in one go interact with every single application with a sort of global lock so that nobody else can touch it while you are. This is really sort of an area where there's sort of, all, all sorts of kind of techniques. And so a lot of sort of what's being built on the blockchain space in order to be able to handle these kind of multiple parallel chains is taking advantage of, of computer science concepts that have been around for, for a long time, kind of just generally dealing with asynchrony. So I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that kind of where it matters, there are going to be sort of nice, you know, nice products in place that basically sort of are able to hide the the annoyances which are currently which are currently very visible to the degree that if a user doesn't want to sort of deeply care about what application a chain that a DAP that they're using is running on, they won't really need to care. Um, there'll be some like you know some increase in fees maybe you know as they you know a slight which will be relatively small just for the cost of liquidity, but it will be sort of relatively in the background. You guys happen to be in uh, talks with any major exchanges about just uh, getting assets off of exchanges straight onto the L2. Can you update on that front? Yes. So uh, since we spoke last, I think we've announced OKX is doing that and also Huobi mm -hmm. uh, will be doing that directly. And we are in contact with uh, a bunch of others uh, as well. But those are the only two that have uh, publicly committed to do that already. And um, uh, they haven't gone live just yet, but I expect those to go live uh, relatively soon. And what about, okay, so everyone is uh, participating in this NFT mania going on right now. So we all know OpenSea. Is there, are you guys talking with any NFT platforms, maybe OpenSea themselves about um, putting their platform onto Arbitrum? Yes, we are in contact with uh, uh, different NFT platforms. And the thing about NFTs, um, at least, you know, I'm curious your, your, your thoughts, at least the way I see it is, if DeFi, it's a lot about bridging the existing projects. Um, and, and part of that is because the, you know, they use uh, fungible assets, so you can take assets and just bridge them en masse. Uh, with NFTs, it's more about like, um, you know, like no, one's no one's taking crypto punks and say, oh, let's move these all over. That's not the way these work. They're not, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I can move my punk to, to Arbitrum if I want to, but the project doesn't uh, move en masse. But I do think that, um, so it's really about new creators, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and we see this every day in really NFT now, like every day there's another amazing project. So it's about getting new creators onto Arbitrum, uh, you know, new artists and, and issuing NFTs on Arbitrum. We're seeing uh, some of that now. Uh, we'll have- uh, Hang on, I really just want to emphasize that point uh, just, to, just to parse it out so we listeners don't skip over that. What you're talking about is like, great, like people in theory can move their CryptoPunks over to Arbitrum, but if you own a CryptoPunk, like you might be okay with just paying the gas fees on the L1, right? There's a decent chance that that's true. There's cheaper NFTs that are just maybe priced at an ETH or lower, but you're saying that like, it actually just makes more sense for some of these newer NFT projects to just issue and deploy natively on Arbitrum first so that you don't actually have to move each individual unit over there. 
Exactly. And I think that's, you know, for the platforms to come, that's when it makes sense. It's not to support the straggling uh, punk or penguin or something, whatever someone moved over. It's really to um, support the native assets that live there. And hey, you know, people might go over the bridge the other way too. So there might be an asset that's native to Arbitrum and someone moves it over to Ethereum mainnet. But I think really uh, we'll see the communities there. So whereas in DeFi, it's more about um, existing projects, uh, you know, existing uh, well-known projects moving over. I think in, in, in NFTs, it's more about watching uh, the creativity and the, and the art that happens on Arbitrum and then the NFT uh, platforms I expect to, to come uh, once, once there's a, uh, a community of, of, of uh, NFTs uh, there. Just to double check on this, when you uh, you said uh, issue NFTs native to Arbitrum, when you issue an NFT on Arbitrum, it is also native to Ethereum, correct? As in, there is no like formal like ongoing link between the NFT and Arbitrum, right? Like you can take it and deploy it and send it over to Ethereum, and then it's just as, it. as sovereign as any other NFT that was initially deployed to Ethereum, correct? Yes, yeah, so we have a bridge. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the bridging in Arbitrum is is is, is um, the bridging in Arbitrum is um, gets inherits. This is where we were talking earlier about there could be many bridges, but the bridge right. that we talk about is the protocol layer bridge that has the um, the roll up security property. Right. So um, right. you can go back and forth in the bridge, and uh, it derives security in Ethereum because uh, because uh, the bridge is secure. Mm-hmm. This is kind of back to that, you know, um, uh, suburbs and city sort of metaphor, right? So, like, if you're starting out with your NFT project, you you know might start in the suburbs where things are cheaper, right? Um, but when you really make it, then maybe you move to Manhattan, maybe you move to to Mainnet, right? So, does this paint the picture of a world where um, the highest value sort of assets and transactions might be on Mainnet, right? But then we have like maybe lower value transactions on um, Arbitrum and other layer twos. And then maybe in kind of sidechain world, you know, we have transactions that just don't really require much economic security at all. Is that kind of how you see this evolve with any asset, whether it's an NFT or whether it's, you know, DeFi tokens, ERC-20 type assets? It's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I would really expect over time that kind of, mainnet will be mostly settling L2s, that there won't really be sort of like a whole large economic ecosystem on mainnet sort of independently from kind of bridging from, you know, interchain bridging protocols and L2s. I I would expect the the more likely scenario to me is that like, let's say, and we have no no plans for this right now, but but thinking long-term, that there is an Arbitrum chain that is just NFT projects that like, if you're gonna do an NFT project, chances are you deploy on the Arbitrum chain. There's another one which is kind of mostly DeFi. Most NFTs are, you know, not high enough value that you're going to want to pull them into the DeFi ecosystem. But the ones that are sort of relatively high value, where maybe you want to like collateralize a loan using your NFT, you might actually do the sort of transfer over to not not to move it back to mainnet, but move it well first to mainnet and then back and then down to deposit it into the uh, the DeFi chain. Yeah, interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see how that evolves. I guess the like one challenge is there there are so many NFTs right now on mainnet, right? And so some of them won't be high value enough to even do anything with to to move. Or would you ever move a CryptoPunk from one chain to another? Is is kind of a question. And I'm talking quite long term here. I'm not talking like you know next. You know you know this is more of essentially as as L2s increase fees on, on mainnet are likely to increase, essentially because what you could do on mainnet for your given transaction fee, I can do 10 times as much 
if I'm on an L2. So I'm going to be willing to pay 10 times more than you are um, in order to get the same utility, which will kind of eventually sort of, you know, you know, be a, be a heavy incentive to, to migrate onto, onto L2s as sort of the amount of, you know, usage of the entire ecosystem increases. Another, I guess, longer term question, a little bit short to, to medium term maybe is uh, when layer two, or excuse me, when ETH2 fully arrives, does that give Arbitrum any additional wins? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're really excited. Um, I'd say we're not yet holding our breaths because I think it's still going to take a little while to, to really get sort of fully there. But when it does, it's going to be a huge benefit. What, what um, are the benefits? Yeah. So, so kind of, and it's funny, there's ETH2 is in these phases. There, there's phase zero, which we already did. I guess there's sort of an, an extra half phase now with the merge. Uh, which is exciting for a whole host of region, reasons, although maybe probably not directly useful to Arbitrum. And then there's phase one, which is data sharding, where we have kind of this sharded blockchain and you can't yet do anything with those shards. They just hold data, except what do rollups need? They need to be able to post data. <laughs> um, and, and so these things are like almost, you know, are basically made for rollups um, since they're not useful for 99% of what happens on Ethereum other than for, for kind of use, other than for rollups. And so when, once that occurs, the L1 costs, which, is, which are kind of by far the biggest component of, of Arbitrum today, will, will most likely go way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, basically the only cost, the cost in the system will be basically just sort of the standard blockchain costs of how much, you know, what's our gas limit, you know, how much congestion is there, as opposed to worrying kind of about this other cost component being a major factor. Can you estimate, is that going to cut like uh, theoretical Arbitrum fees in like in half or maybe like uh, cut it like maybe it's one tenth? Like what's the ballpark range that we're looking at? So for the layer one part, yeah, I mean, probably somewhere between one one hundredth and one tenth, I would guess. Mm-hmm. They're going to be, you know, 64. I think last I checked, although they, they've moved this around a bit, but I think last I checked, it was going to be either 16 or 64 shards that mm-hmm. been iterating on the design a bit there. Um, each one with sort of a, a huge amount of data throughput compared to Ethereum today. And no one else other than rollups are going to be able to make use of this mm-hmm. um, until phase two when execution is added. Um, and so it'll be sort of, you know, it's going to be a roll-up world, basically. Basically, yeah. And then and all of the funny. gas savings that you guys have just are passed on to the user, right? So now yep. the users have to pay less fees. Exactly. And, and the really cool part is users will just get that win uh, that, you know, Arbitrum will, you know, and this is another kind of, you know, another you know, short-term reason that ma- maintaining upgradability is really important because when ETH2 comes out, we're going to want to be able to make sort of, a, you know, an alteration to the layer one system that will actually let us use this massively cheaper path. Mm-hmm. And, and then all the entire Arbitrum ecosystem will just one day see all of their fees go way down. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't, I don't think people know that, by the way, not many people. And how far, I, I know you guys aren't on the ETH2 team, so it's almost like unfair to ask, but just ballpark, what do you think? Is this like uh, a year away? Is it more? Is it less? 
I, I don't know. I, don't I think I will try to guess. <laughs> I know it's good. All I can say is, yeah, you know, it, just echoing what Harry says from our, from from our perspective, it can't come soon enough. And people people miss that because, like, even like you know, talking to like investors, they some people like have this thought like that we're that roll ups are just a band aid until E two comes, and like it couldn't be anything like different, like more more different. And you look at Vitalik; uh, he has this post about a roll up centric Ethereum. That's not like a roll up centric ETH one. That's a roll up centric Ethereum like ETH two for sure. So, uh, yeah, we we can't wait for it to come soon enough, but I think our guess is as good as anyone else's. There before, we go. before we get to that, I mean, I think the thing that that personally I'm really excited about is the merge and and the move away from proof of stake. Because one of one of the questions I sometimes get in, in in when I'm interviewing people who are not sort of too deeply in the space, they're like, "Oh, so Arbitrum doesn't have to use is you know is is really green then because it doesn't have to use proof of work." And it's, it's like, like not no. yet, <laughs> <laughs> not exactly. And then how do you explain? How do you even right. have that conversation? Have you ever had tried to have that conversation? You get into explaining. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the great thing to say and the thing you know the thing that like you know as you know as, as sort of you know. The, the Ethereum community can can and does say is like we're we're not there yet, but it's the plan. It's always been the plan. It's it's not easy. So a huge amount of work has gone into it. But you know, proof of work has always been a stopgap measure until proof of stake was figured out. And I think that you know is very satisfying because the thing people are really worried about is not like okay, is it going to still take you know some number of you know years or whatever. I mean, I don't think it is, but like you know. It's like, is this like, you know, just like permanently like this or, or is there kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a better system in the future, which so clearly is. So question to both of you, as we come down to the close of this uh, show, uh, what are you personally excited about to see get deployed on Optimism or excuse me, Arbitrum? Um, Steven, you want to take that first? Yeah. Um, I'm just personally excited about really, um, it, it really, the entire, you know, it's, it's not one, it's really, it's really everything. And what I mean by that specifically is that there was a time, if you have asked me a year ago, I would have said, you know, the thing that I'm, that terrifies me most about rollups getting adoption is that you can't do this one app at a time. It just doesn't work because then that app's in a desert and, you know, its users lose out and they can't do all these cool things uh, that every other app on Ethereum can do. And so it's like a very hard coordination problem. So for me, it's really about having a full functional DeFi ecosystem. And we're, we're so close right now and we'll be probably be there within a week or so based on the you know, projection I hear from And that's means you have lending, DEXs, DEXs, options, derivatives, all on Arbitrum. And, and that's the point where any any prod, product, uh, project can say, I, I can deploy an Arbitrum today. I, I don't need to wait. I don't need to say, well, I, I just need A, B, and C, and D to move. So I'm really excited about just the full ecosystem. And you know, we're, we're almost there. We, we, we did a lot of waiting to sort of, for a lot of people to get ready. Not everyone went live on day one. Uh, you know, today's, uh, what is it, day uh, four, I guess. Um, so, but I think by day 15, we'll have um, pretty much, um, you know, I'm not gonna say we'll have every single project or multiple in each category, but I think we'll have the entire DeFi ecosystem covered um, within days. And that to me is, is incredibly exciting. And that's not, you know, that's, that's, that's step one. I'm also excited about NFTs. I'm um, having a lot of good conversation with gaming, but like um, what I'm personally most excited about is just the full DeFi, DeFi ecosystem because that's where composability is so magical. And a year ago, I think nobody had any idea that you could basically do this coordination, just get everyone to move like, you know, or to redeploy in uh, mass, and that's um, incredible, incredible to, to see play out because it's against everything we, we thought was possible a year ago. I, I would say for, for me, 
it's kind of seeing seeing applications that wouldn't have been possible on Ethereum. Um, and and I know we I think we already have sort of our you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure if they're live. I think some at least some live. You know, for instance, perpetual protocols, which just you know are more expensive. Um, retail DeFi that's that's you know just hasn't had access. Um, and, and and you know and, and then you know. Those are, those are even sort of the, the least exciting of like the new things to come because those are the ones I can think of. That's <laughs> <laughs> such, such a good answer. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Harry killed it on that one. <laughs> the day when I, keep, when, I, when I see something new launch and I'm like, oh my God, that's right. possible? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very what cool have we guy. done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much for a uh, conversation today, guys. I guess maybe last question. Um, you, you recently had a, a pretty monster raise. So congrats on that. $120 million. Um, also, it sounds like you guys are hiring. So what are you going to do with um, that $120 million? Are you Are you hiring some folks? Any shout outs you want to give? Yeah, that is what we're doing with the 120 million. It's basically full hiring. So we're fully remote. So we don't have, we have very, very minimal overhead. And that's going to basically go to investing in, in people and investing in, in research and development because basically, um, you know, this gets to, you know, we've covered uh, a few things around this, which, uh, what, what our scalability is now, what we'll get to eventually. And the answer is, uh, you know, we think Arbitrum is a good answer to, to a lot of the scalability problems today. We think there's still a long way to go because adoption is not going down. We're going up and to the right, and that's going to continue going that way. And so we have to think about, hey, um, not only how do we scale for the next six months and how do we scale for the next year, but how do we move past that and have fundamental you know, increase, uh, increases and, and capacity increases over five years and 10 years as well? Because you know, we believe, and, and we believe this for a while. If I look back 10 years ago, I was, I was, I was already talking about... Uh, you know, blockchains back then. So uh, we, we think that's where the adoption is going. And therefore, uh, it really will give us the ability to invest in, in, in people and build multi- cross-functional teams that are uh, improving Arbitrum today, but also have like big bet vision uh, visions. And that's uh, about core scalability. It's also about like tooling and, and compatibility because, you know, we, we're fully EVM compatible and it's great. And that's allowing us to really um, be the best solution for those that are uh, you know, that, that are in the Ethereum community today. But then we also ask ourselves, um, what about the user that comes to Arbitrum tomorrow? Can we make their experience even smoother? Can we, can we give them extra tooling and extra and, and do things maybe that, that, you know, add affordances that would be harder to do on, on, on layer one? And, you know, this is something which we're thinking about a lot because uh, as we grow and grow and grow, the, the community of developers, you know, we need to tap into, uh, you know, much broader communities and to give uh, people the ability to acclimate onto Ethereum uh, and more smoothly and easier, I think is, is really, really exciting. So, but in one word, it's hiring. That's what we'll be doing with, with, with that. And we, uh, um, I don't think we're, you know, we're not looking, it's a lot of money. So we're, we're not looking to build, um, you know, a, 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 an army. We're looking to build uh, a nice sized team of, you know, some of the best minds in the world. So we'll be paying, you know, co- uh, you know we'll be, uh, you know, uh, um, compensating very competitively for uh, really, really um, strong engineers and, and, uh, and uh, researchers. And you get to work with us. <laughs> you guys have it. Uh, Arbitrum team, Harry, Steven, thank you so much for joining us. I like the sound of DeFi in days. Really looking forward to doing more with Arbitrum in the future. Thank you so much for having us.
Thank you. Absolutely, guys. Uh, well, looks like layer two summer is here. It's bleeding into fall a little bit. I think this is a uh, layer two be... year. It's just years from now. It's, it's just it's, it's that's layer what it is. two from now on. I mean, yeah. this is kind of the roadmap for mm -hmm. Ethereum. So we'll be having a lot more conversations about layer two, of course, guys. Go check it out. Go try it out for yourself. We'll include some links in the show note. I think we're actually releasing a guide on Bankless pretty soon to Arbitrum. Um, I'm not sure if that's next week or the week after, but we'll have that as a resource for you on the Bankless newsletter. If you're not subscribed to the Bankless newsletter, newsletter.banklesshq.com. Also, if you're not subscribed to this YouTube channel, what are you doing? Hit subscribe. Yeah, we're, we're publishing content like this every day. <laughs> Why aren't you subscribed? What Why aren't you subscribed yet? <laughs> risk and disclaimers, guys. Of course, none of this was financial advice. DeFi is risky. ETH is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.